Hey, turn in your Bibles to Ezra this morning. I know you read Ezra all the time, so you know exactly where it is. Um, we're really only going to be in Ezra for about two verses, not long at all. So uh, if you think, I don't even want to mess with it, you could not do it. But I, at least go find Ezra. And I'm not going to get to those two verses till about halfway or three-quarters of the way through the sermon. So you've got plenty of time. Um, those of you who are, know your Bibles backwards and forwards are already there probably. Uh, sometimes we, we tell God that we want him to do something on Monday morning. And if it hasn't been done by Thursday, we get ticked off and, and you know, we, we, sometimes we get tempted to not even believe in God. If he's not going to do what we want and he's not going to be any faster about it than that, we, you know, in our mindset, we think, well, why can't God move better than that? Why can't he? He's, he's God, isn't he? Can't he do this stuff faster? And so if we don't get the results that we want, uh, we get upset. God's timetable is, uh, is different than ours. You know, he, he's not necessarily working on days, weeks, and years like we are. And, and so he sees this stuff way different than us sometimes. And as we look at the Bible, we're reminded that God is in control and God does things in history um, on a scale and a, a, a scope that we don't even think about sometimes. Ezra really is the end of a story. It's, a, it's the end of a story that begins 100 years prior. And uh, it was when the nation of Israel had been disobedient. And because of that disobedience, God had basically allowed the Babylonians to come and take them captive, which is uh, what he said he was going to do. And, and, and the really sad part of that is that when they came in and they took the, the Israelites captive, they destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple at Jerusalem, which was a really big deal. And they hauled off all the silver and all the gold out of the temple. And they took it back um, 900 miles. They took it back to, to to Babylon and uh, they put it in one of their cities and they took with them also slaves some of those slaves we know the names of guys like Daniel and Shadrach Meshach and Abednego those are guys that they got caught up in this thing and they got taken back to Babylon as well and then after the Babylonians had destroyed Israel about 70 years later the Persians destroyed Babylon and all this took place in what is now modern-day Iraq and Iran. If you're wondering what those cities, those countries were back in the day, back in the day, that was Babylon pretty much. And what's interesting is that after the Persians destroyed Babylon, the king, Cyrus, decided to send everybody back to Israel, which is very strange. I mean, you've got this very powerful man. In fact, some people called him the king of kings. He was the large and in charge king Cyrus was and he looked at these Israelites and he said you know you've been in captivity all this time I'm going to turn you loose and I'm going to send you back uh, to where you came from and I'm going to let you go home now this would uh, have been a complete and utter surprise except for one thing this had been prophesied in the books of Jeremiah Ezekiel and Daniel um, these prophets had already said that after 70 years of captivity the king is going to let the people go um, and so that really shouldn't have come as a shock or a surprise to anybody um, the problem is is that Nobody believed it. I mean, you've got these people that have been in captivity for 70 years. Some of them have been born into captivity. It's all they've ever known. And so they don't think about the idea that they could ever go anyplace else. To some of these people, home was where they were. And so um, generations have come and gone over that 70 years. And all of a sudden, Cyrus says, I want to send everybody home. And it was a fulfillment of, a, of an incredible prophecy made 70 years before that God would judge the nation with 70 years of captivity and then send them back to, to Jerusalem. So Cyrus calls on a guy named Zerubbabel. Now, I don't know what name you've got, but thank your lucky stars that it's not Zerubbabel. Can you imagine going to school with that one on you? And he says, uh, Zerubbabel, I want you to take the people of Israel back to their homeland, and I want you to rebuild, rebuild the temple of God. 
And it's pretty amazing when you think about it. Here's a pagan king who wants to release these people and he wants to send them back and basically sponsor the rebuilding of the city and of the temple that had uh, been destroyed some 70 years earlier. Zerubbabel gets to Israel and he gets to Jerusalem and he starts to rebuild the temple and they start to make some progress. But there are some other people around Israel who are watching what's going on. And these are not Israelites. These are people who've made their homes in this 70 years' time around the temple site and around Jerusalem. And they, they're standing off in the distance, and they're watching these people come back in, and they're building, and they're building, and, and they start thinking to themselves, uh-oh, Israel is about to become a superpower again. And so, uh, you know, they send a letter off to Cyrus, <clears throat> the Persian king, and they basically say, have you lost your mind? you probably wouldn't say that to the king of kings like that but you know rough translation have you gone crazy i mean what are you thinking to sponsor something like this because they're going to get big again and they're going to build these cities they're going to fortify they're going to they're going to become a huge nation again and then you're really going to have have done damage to us and potentially to you and and basically what are you thinking and so they stop the people from rebuilding the temple and send a letter back to the persian king and say you've made a huge mistake and so uh, for years, this goes back and forth, back and forth. Letters go back and forth. And they start the temple, and they stop the temple, and they start, and they stop, and they start, and they stop. And letters are going back and forth. Now, incidentally, email didn't exist then, okay? So it takes a while to go that kind of distance. You know, we, we're so used to just sending off an email. It didn't happen like that way. And four kings later, in the Persian Empire, there is a king named Darius, and he gets one of these letters from this group that's around Jerusalem, and he stops the people from building the temple, or the, the, the ones that, the, the people that have, he gets a letter from the people who have tried to stop the building of the temple. And so he reads this letter, and he calls his historians in. And he says, you know, who are these Jewish people that they're talking about, and, and what's going on? Because they keep writing me these letters, and they say that if I knew my history, I wouldn't be letting this happen, uh, the way it's unfolding. And so they, he sends these historians into the archives to figure out what's the deal with all this and, and what's the history behind it. And uh, so these historians go into the archives and one of them comes across a document that is signed by a king. And you, you, whenever they had official documents, the king always had a signet ring. And um, I don't know if you've ever seen the stationery with the wax on it, you know, where you could stamp the wax. Some people believe that, that the signet ring, they actually did that with the ring. They would put some wax on there and seal it, or they would impression that ring into the document, and it would seal it and make it an official document. Well, a historian comes back and says, look what I found. And so um, he says, basically, the reason that, that the Israelites are rebuilding the city and rebuilding the temple like that is because King Cyrus, a long, long time ago, commissioned them to do that. And so Darius takes a look at the letter, and it's, it's official, and it's, it's got the seal on it, and he sends a letter back to the governors of the provinces there around Jerusalem, and he basically says, um, I've done my homework, I've figured out what's going on, and it turns out that the, the king Cyrus uh, commissioned this work to be done, and not only do I not want you, do I want you to stop bothering them, but I want you to help them finish the work. And so generations go by and God keeps using these pagan unbelieving kings and and people who aren't necessarily uh, haven't had a history of being friends with Israel um, to facilitate history and to facilitate his purpose and his will for his people and so the leaders of Israel have this big celebration after they get finished and and uh, they start to work on the surrounding area and they're building that up and and um, 
you know, they're doing all this stuff just as God's promised that it was going to happen. And, and um, as, as it's being facilitated basically by a superpower uh, over in Iraq in the Iran area, about 900 miles away, 20 years go by. And they finish the temple, and they start uh, sacrificing again, and things are starting to happen for Israel, and, and, and 20 years go by, and then another amazing thing happens. Darius, the emperor, has died now, and now there's a new king, and his name, are you ready for this? Artaxerxes. You ready for that? Artaxerxes. Now, um, that might be a great name for your Rottweiler, but I don't know that you'd want to go to school with a name like that. <clears throat> He's the most powerful man in the world. And he refuses, uh, uh, refuse. he rules the most powerful nation in the world, and the Persian kingdom lasted for almost 300 years, which is really a long time. And one day, and we don't know why, we're not really sure why, other than to say that God um, just moves sometimes, and God directs certain things to happen for reasons that we can't explain other than that God wants them to happen. And uh, one day, Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes decides to take all the treasure all the gold and silver, all the artifacts and utensils and shields and all the stuff that's been taken out of the temple, he decides um, that after it's been in Babylon for hundreds and hundreds of years, that he's going to take all that stuff, bundle it up, and he wants to send it back. Um, you know, Nebuchadnezzar had basically stolen this stuff 900 years, uh, 100 years previous to all this, and uh, he wants to send all that stuff back to the temple where they've just built the new temple. Um, now, the Persians had treasure cities all over the, the country. They had these, these places where they had these big vaults walk in. There were buildings, but they didn't have windows, and, and the doors were, you know, specially made, and, and they, were, they were vaults, basically. And so he calls one of the Jewish leaders that he knows at the time, a guy named Ezra. And he calls Ezra in, and he says, Listen, I want you to take the wealth that was stolen from Israel many years ago, and I want you to put it, put it back into the temple of your God, who I don't even know and I don't even serve and I don't really even care that much about. And Ezra is shocked. I mean, what else would you be? I mean, you get called in and, and here's this king with all this power and he doesn't believe in your God and, and he's sitting on all this treasure that was many, many, many years ago taken away from the temple and he may not, Ezra may not have even known that this treasure existed um, because it would have st stood to reason that some people would have taken some of it or they'd have dispersed it or it could be all over the place. And so the most powerful man in the world wants to help the Jews and wants to transfer a vast amount of wealth from these vaults, these storehouses, and get them back to the temple. And apparently, Artaxerxes takes Ezra to one of these vaults and he lets him walk in. And this had to have been a real emotional thing for Ezra as, as maybe he got to go in and, and take a gander at, at all this treasure, treasure that had not been seen for hundreds of years. The last time any Jew had seen this stuff it was on its way out of the temple, and it was on the carts and on the backs of donkeys belonging to Babylonians. And so, you know, they'd put it on wagons, and they'd carried it all off to Babylon, and it dawns on Ezra that God is at work, and he's alive, and he's actually preserved all this wealth. That it hasn't been scattered all over the world, that God basically has uh, used these, these pagan kings to to use their authority to storehouse these treasures that were made in the temple for the temple by Solomon. These were original artifacts, hundreds of years old, some of them. And Artaxerxes says, take it all back. Take it out of the storehouses, and take it 900 miles across the desert back to the temple where it belongs. Amazing. Here's the problem. They start bringing this stuff out and they start stacking it up. 
and it soon becomes very apparent that there is over 25 tons of silver and gold. 25 tons is going to be sent back to the temple that's being given back to the people that's belonged to these kings these babylonians it seemed lost and now it's just starting to stack up can you imagine if you're ezra and you're watching all this stuff stack up you're thinking a couple of things i can't believe it's all here i can't believe the value of it and i can't believe now we've got a real problem we've got to somehow figure out a way to transport this across the desert across 900 miles back to the temple and people are gonna, the word's going to get out and they're going to line up like birds of prey and they're if we're lucky enough to get there with our lives much less treasure you know how in the world is this ever going to happen so ezra does a very smart thing he gathers together 24 guys that he can trust and he goes to them and he says choose uh, some guys out of the 24 of you you pick up some guys and you put together the tools necessary for us to be able to have wagons and donkeys and whatever it's going to take for us to get all this stuff back so 24 guys he rounds up to help him with this project and they're going to set about to transfer the wealth back 900 miles to across the desert to israel um, ezra knew that this was a dangerous mission and there was a part of him that wanted to go to Artaxerxes and say hey look you know we're going to get killed if we try and go across the desert with all this treasure do you think you could maybe break off some guard for us and give us some armies or something to to protect us as we go across the desert Ezra's problem was he was perplexed because he talked so much about how great his God was and how faithful he was that he was embarrassed to go to the king and tell the king hey we could use some help in other words our God is a great God but I don't know that our God is great enough to get us across the desert and protect this vast wealth that you're sending back to Israel um, so they fast and they pray and they say God you're clearly up for the task and as tempting as it would be for us to stay here in our homes and to stay here where we're comfortable to stay here with all that we know we believe that you're really calling us to take this treasure back and so that's what we're going to do we're going to take the treasure back all the way to the temple in Israel so he divides up the treasure he lets each guy leave with his treasure at a different time they don't all go at once they don't put all their eggs in the same basket they kind of release them in spurts you know and they go across to make their way and as they start the journey, they travel and travel, and Ezra is at the head of the pack. And eventually, he's going to arrive all the way across the desert, 900 miles, and he's going to get the signal. He looks over his shoulder, and he can see, and as he sees over, over behind him, he can see the next group coming in. And as he waits, he starts to count up he's, as each one comes in, and the next one comes in, and the next one comes in. And at the end of the whole thing, finally, the Bible tells us that all 24 men arrive with all the wealth, not one a uh, caravan of it has been stolen or lost or nothing's happened to it they've, they've received the protection they needed they made it safely to the temple and they had one unbelievable party as you might imagine uh, when they got there God had intervened God had used these pagan kings to provide for them uh, God had worked through generations uh, he had worked for over a hundred years to prepare some of this stuff God has restored the nation, God has restored the temple, God has restored the people, and now God has even restored their wealth. I mean, it's a time for celebration. Who could explain that? Who could explain that an unbelieving king would direct that the people go back? Who could explain that an unbelieving king would release all this treasure and all this, um, these, these artifacts that have been held for all these years? It just didn't make any sense, but they knew that God was at work now the story uh, gets really interesting to me and it's very encouraging to me and you know why because around here 
I try to listen for God's voice, as I think that you do. Our elders certainly do. And um, I try to, to do what I think he wants me to do. I try to lead in a way that I think God wants me to lead. And sometimes, you know, as we talk about vision and sometimes as we talk about what's going to happen next, sometimes things don't happen in the timing that we expect them to happen or that we would like for them to happen and we get tempted to ask questions around here I know I certainly do and I don't always verbalize that but sometimes I'm tempted to ask the question God are you really there I mean are you calling us to some of this stuff but are you going to do it are you are you really going to be working behind the scenes to make all this happen because if you're not going to be behind the scenes making it all happen we're all going to look foolish it's it's not going to be good and so we're all tempted I think at times certainly I am to ask those kind of questions but every now and then God plops down and he empowers men and women and he gives them opportunities to do incredible things um, if they are in fact willing to take advantage of the opportunities that God presents for them. And today there are three basic takeaways that I want to give us uh, based on the story that we just read. <clears throat> the first one, the, the first takeaway that I would give you is basically the amazing ways of God. God moves and works in ways that we don't always anticipate. God moves and works in ways that we probably wouldn't draw up on paper sometimes. Um, God gave the Israelites unbelievable favor with these pagan kings and with these pagan people. And, and I would just say, <coughs> I think that's happening at Cross Lane. For reasons that I can't explain, um, I am coming into contact increasingly with people who come to this church for whatever reason, basically because you've befriended them and you've invited them or you've told them about our church, but for whatever reason, people with great frequency, great frequency, say that three times fast, great frequency, walk through our doors. They sit in here and they worship with us. Uh, we teach them, we talk about the Lord. And after some time, uh, either you or a lot of times I get the opportunity to sit down and talk with them about the possibility of receiving Christ. And I, I never cease to be amazed by how many people look at me and say, Brett, until you talked about um, that story in the Old Testament, I had never heard that before. And these are stories, you know, that we've, those of us who've been in the church have heard our whole life and we can't imagine anybody not knowing those stories. Even the ones like Noah and the Ark and David and, and Goliath, um, they say, well, I know those names, but I don't really know the specifics about what happened until you preach the story on David and Goliath. I'd never heard that before. And, you know, that's just, it's, it's hard to, for me to wrap my head around that sometimes, but that's the reality. Those are the kind of people that are coming to church here. What is it that God is doing in this church that makes those kinds of people, people who need the Lord, want to come here? What is that? I think it's God giving us an opportunity. Um, over the past, uh, over the, ne the this year alone, we will have had somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 to 20 baptisms um, that have either happened or, or are going to happen between now and Christmas time. And of those 20, five of those have been kids um, somewhere between the age of maybe 10 and 15. Okay, the rest of those are adults. And a lot of those are people that if you'd asked them two years ago, hey, do you ever think that you're ever going to get baptized? They'd say, well, probably not. Uh, for whatever reason, those people come here and, and you love on them and we teach and, and we worship together and God is able to connect with them in a way that they feel safe and secure and they feel like nobody's laughing at them and they feel like they can learn and grow and, and, 
and have their faith nurtured and all that happens here and God, God basically has just given us favor with people in Terre Haute um, at, at not an, I started saying alarming rate I don't know that alarming is a word I would use but it's just it, sometimes I just sit back and I say God man this is so cool and so why is that happening other than that God is blessing us other than that the amazing ways of God that he says hey I'm going to bring these people to you I'm going to entrust these people to you for the second takeaway we need to turn to Ezra chapter 7 uh, and I'll give you just a minute to find that uh, Ezra chapter 7 the last two verses of this chapter um, we need to take a look at Ezra realizes that God's favor is with the nation of Israel and that he has given them an incredible opportunity go ahead I'm gonna give you just a second to find that if you're I hear a couple of pages turning Ezra 7 verse 27 Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. He's saying there's no way that this would ever be happening without God. The king and his officials have given me all this treasure to transport back to Jerusalem. The king and his officials are looking at me with favor, I mean, it's just really, it's unbelievable. Ezra is just kind of scratching his head and he's saying, how in the world is all this happening? And then look at this next verse. Because the hand of the Lord, my God, was on me, I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. When Ezra realized the opportunity that was presented to him, when he realized that to allow things to stay the way they were would have been to have missed a great opportunity, when he realized that God was at work, and this is takeaway number two, Ezra at that moment said, I have to act. I have to do something. I see that God is, is up to something. I see that God's working among us. I see that God has given us an incredible opportunity. I, for me to just stand pat and to just say, well, I'm comfortable, uh, I can't do that. I have to act. Um, he says, I couldn't just sit still. I couldn't hang back and wait for somebody else to do it. Um, I couldn't say, nah, get somebody else to do it. I'm too busy or I don't want to be bothered with it. Um, I don't want to move back to Jerusalem. My family's happy here, you know, whatever reason he might offer. He said, I realize that I have to act. And he said, I took courage. And I took trustworthy men and I loaded up the treasure and we took it across the desert. You know what? Sometimes as the person who fills the role that i have which is to lead our church i get really tempted to not lead well in some areas sometimes the job looks really big and sometimes i get really tempted to just uh, try to ignore that we're being called to certain things sometimes i'm really tempted to not talk about certain things uh, sometimes the things that God expects me to do, I would just really rather not hear God's voice. I would really, uh, because I think, oh, if you go try to do that, or if you go try to sell that, um, you're likely to be hammered. You're likely to be misunderstood. You're likely to have somebody look at you and think something about you that is not true. Um, 
sometimes when God expects me to do certain things, they aren't pleasant to think about, and I have to confess to you that it's not really my favorite thing to stand up and do. Whenever God says, hey, Brett, I need you to talk about uh, money, and I need you to talk about what people do with their money. I need you to talk about what's got to happen around here in order for Cross Lane to be the kind of church that Cross Lane is going to be. I need you to talk about special offerings. I need you to talk about buildings. I need you to talk about potential staff people. I hear that and I say, God, you know, I, I was pretty comfortable <laughs> before we started having this conversation. I was, uh, I was in a pretty good mood and I was feeling pretty good about things before we started to have this talk. Sometimes I'm very tempted to just not talk about that kind of stuff. And I can go on and I can get honest about things like worship. I can get honest about things like uh, evangelism. I don't have any problem doing that, do I? I can, I can pin my ears back and go after us about how we need to evangelize better and how we need to invest and invite and how we need to reach out to other people. And I can talk about prayer and I can talk about faith. Those aren't hard. Those are really, those are pretty easy. But when it comes to certain things, because I'm afraid of being misunderstood or because I'm afraid that someone is going to accuse me of a motive that I do not have, or because I, I have seen spiritual leaders who have abused that authority and, and have fallen and done things that they shouldn't have done, and, and that scares me. Sometimes because of those things and other things, there are times that I just really struggle to lead well. And then I read this, and I can hear God say, Brett, I have blessed Cross Lane in amazing ways. And I need a leader who will stand up and call people to do hard things, who will look them in the eye, who will not apologize for calling them to the things that I am calling them to. I think what God would say is, Brett, I'm not blinking, and you shouldn't either. There are doors that are wide open, I think. And if you're a leader from time to time, I think God would say, Brett, you've got to gather up courage. You've got to... Um, Get this organization to do the kind of things that I'm calling it to do. You can't get lazy. You can't get comfortable. You can't just say, well, it's us four and no more. And don't think just because things are good right now that things are going to be good forever. You can't just ride it out. I think God is saying, nope, this is not the end. This is just the beginning. You know, it's real easy for us to look at things and go, oh, wow, look at that, how cool that is, or look at how things are going here. And to, and to think that we can just rest. And, and I think what God would say is, I need you to lead with courage, and I need you to lead with diligence. And that brings us to the third thing in this passage. It's easy to read a story like this and see the part where the king's going to break off 25 tons of treasure and send it back to Jerusalem. He's just going to give it to him. And, and the preacher in me wants to say, well, that's just too easy. I mean, that's a typical... Old Testament, I mean, it always works that way in the Old Testament. You know, does it work that way in your life? I mean, can you imagine? As far as I know, there's never been a church that's existed where the bank, that's like the bank calling us and saying, hey, uh, we've got about 30 or $40 million over here that, that you know, we've just kind of assigned your name to. And if you can just back up the trucks over here to the front doors, we'd be happy to load that out. You know, I mean, that's kind of what this is like. Do you think if we got a phone call like that, I wouldn't spring into action? You think every soccer mom in here with a, with a minivan wouldn't get a phone call from me? Hey, we need you at the bank immediately to back up. Every guy with a truck would be on my speed dial to get you to the bank as quick as we could so that we could offload that money and get it to the things that we uh, would like to see done. 
We could expand in all different kinds of directions. We could do (laughs) all kinds of things if that were to happen to us. And I think God would say this to us. Cross Lane, I have provided you with all the money and all the wealth. I have distributed it out that you need to take advantage of the opportunities that are before you. But bread is going to have to lead you. And Brett is going to have to have some conversations that are not going to make you comfortable and are not going to make him comfortable. He's going to go home at night and wonder if he said the right thing. He's going to worry if he said the wrong thing. He's going to stay awake a little bit at night worrying about doing it the right way. I'm not bashful about preaching to you about service. I can do that. I'm not bashful about preaching to you about margin, about achieving margin, financial margin, time margin in your life. I'm not bashful about that. I'm not bashful about talking to you about invest and invite. I don't have any problem doing that. But when it comes to sermons on giving, I am just not very strong. Part of it is that I don't want to be misunderstood. Part of it is that I know that your friends are going to be here. And I don't want to have those conversations in front of your friends. I have friends that are going to be in the second service this morning. And I almost asked them not to come. Because I was afraid that they would hear the wrong thing. But you know what? God wants to do a work in every area of our life. And for me to hide the, tra- the financial part from even visitors is not fair to them. It's not fair to shield them from that part of their life to tell them what God wants and expects from the people who say we're followers of Jesus. The other reason that I, I, I'm tempted to not talk about money a whole lot is because, quite honestly, this church has done a, a pretty good job over the last couple of years of, of giving. It's, it's been a generous church. You are a very generous church. I mean, really, um, with, with not a lot of effort, really, you think about it, with not a lot of effort... This church, this past year, will have given about $400,000 to kingdom work. I mean, for 300 people to give that kind of money, that's really, there are a lot of churches that would love to, to, to be able to say that about themselves. Now, we aren't the, the best giving church, but I'm telling you, I, I'm very proud of, whenever we talk, whenever I talk to other pastors and we talk about our giving and that kind of stuff i'm very proud of the way our church gives that we with very little effort i mean we 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 don't browbeat you we don't i don't preach a whole lot about money i mean with very little effort basically the biggest thing that happens is we send guys up here in the morning they pray over the offering and they pass plates and with very little effort we gave four hundred thousand dollars to kingdom work last year and it's really easy to look and say that a church of 300 gave that kind of money wow we're really doing good And it's really tempting for me to say, well, you know, if we're doing that good, I mean, I can't push them anymore. But I think God says, no, Brett, that church has not reached its potential. That church has not even come close to reaching the potential that is there. And I think God would say, you've looked at that kind of money and you've looked at that kind of giving and you've said, wow, that's really great, we're doing well. But that isn't our capacity. That's not our potential. That is just basically casual giving habits for us. We have much greater potential. Somebody would say, well, do we need it? Do, I mean, do we really need more? You know what? If I'm leading you well, you'll never know that we need it. If I'm leading you well, you'll never pick up on the idea that that's, there's a, a need like that around here uh, because I'm going to be sensitive to the people that you bring in. I'm going to be sensitive to guests and visitors. And if you're a guest or a visitor this morning, I hope you hear the way I'm talking about this 
A, <laughs> learn what you need to learn based on Scripture, but some of this is kind of like an in-house thing, and you get the, you get the privilege of kind of sitting in and hearing some of it. But I don't want unchurched friends to leave here and say, boy, they need the money. So if I'm leading well, you'll never walk out and say, boy, we, we need a lot. The, the third takeaway is this. I have a choice to make. I can lead you in every other area that this church needs to be led, and I can lead us to be a, uh, an evangelizing church, and I can lead us to be a missions church, and I can lead us to be a serving church, and I can lead us in all those other areas and neglect this one area, this giving area. Or I can be obedient to God when he says, Brett, you have not led well enough or strong enough in this area, and I need you to get over yourself, and I need you to stand up, and I need you to say the things that I want these people to hear. So I have to tell you, we're doing good, but we have to do more. If we don't, we will miss opportunities that I think God is bringing our way. The temptation is to do nothing. You know, for me, the temptation, let, let me just clue you in. The temptation for me is to do nothing because you know what? I have a great life. I have a beautiful wife. I have a great family. We're happy. I have a nice house to live in. Church takes good care of me. I've got a routine. I've got things kind of figured out. I know how my life can be set up to be very comfortable for me. I don't need this. I don't need the headache that comes from talking about this particular part of a church's life. And you know what? You don't need it either. You're pretty comfortable. You figured out how to get your kids to the right place on Sunday morning. You figured out where the best parking place is at the church. You figured out where the best seat is for you to be able to hear right and music's not too loud, not too soft, and be able to see Brett whenever he does those crazy things that he does. You figured all that stuff out. You figured out how to, who, to, who do you need to talk to to greet and how to get out of here as quick as you can so you beat Baptist to the restaurants on Sunday morning. You have figured that out. You don't need this. But you know what? It would be horrible stewardship. And I think it would be disobedience for us to just look at what we've done and say, well, you know, we've done pretty good. Our vision and our mission is not about being big. Our vision and our mission is not about being full. I heard a preacher say one time, if you want a full building, just build a smaller one. It's easy to fill a small building. Our vision is about bringing people to Jesus, and God has showed us how to do that. This is the formula that we have figured out to bring people to Jesus. You create environments. You create environments, you protect those environments, you staff those environments, and you fund those environments. That's how you bring people to Jesus. You figure out what they need, you create the environments for it, then you staff it and you fund it. And God uses the environments to draw people to him. It's not anything we're doing. We're just trying to be obedient to what God calls us to do and when we are and as we are God responds and says okay I'm going to send these people to you I think you're ready for these people I'm going to give you influence in their life I want, to be, I want us to be a church that more and more gets the idea of stewardship I want us to be a church that more and more uh, locks into the idea that what I have is, is not mine but it's God's and I, I, you know, I'm going to try and do this best I can and, and I'll go slow in fact, I may do this two or three times. I'm going to just so that you can understand the concept, okay? This is the concept this morning that, that we need everybody to buy into and lock into. We'll do it like this. For every 10 of these that God gives you, you need to take one of them and give it back 
to kingdom work. That's complicated, so we might need to do it again, okay? Let's just do it again. For every 10 of these, I know percentages and things that can get kind of crazy in numbers, and so I'm going to go slow. Every 10 of these we get, and, and understand that these aren't ours, and we may work for them, and our employer may give them to us, but who do they really belong to, and where do they really come from? They come from God. For every 10 of these that we get, we are to take one, and give it back to kingdom work. Now, it works on a bigger scale too. Let me just do this. For every 100 of these that you get, you give back 10. For every 1,000, you give back 100. For every 10,000, you give back 1,000. You say, well, that goes all the way up to a million? Yes. For every million of these that he gives you, every time he gives you a million, you're to return a tenth of what he gives you. It's not hard. Some people say, well, you know, the whole idea of, of tithing is really not a New Testament, it's really not a New Testament concept. You don't want me to talk about tithing as not being a New Testament concept because here's what I'm going to tell you. When Jesus came along, basically he took the Old Testament and he ratcheted it up a little bit. He took adultery and he said, you know, the Old Testament says if you commit adultery, that's, there's bad not to commit adultery. I'm telling you, if you even look at a woman the wrong way, you've committed adultery. The Old Testament says don't murder. I'm telling you that if you have hate in your heart, you have already murdered somebody. The Old Testament has an awful lot to say about the way things should be. Jesus comes along and he says, it's harder than, than that, really. If, if he looks at murder and, and adultery like that, what, how do you think he looks at money? Did he lower his standard? Let me ask you that question. Did he lower his, the standard of the Old Testament or did he raise the standard? So when someone's, I always chuckle when someone says, well, you know, tithing really isn't a New Testament concept. You're exactly right. It's probably more than that. He raised it. As the leader, I want to push you to reach the potential that I think God has given to you and given to me in every area of life, in the area of evangelism, in the area of missions, in the area of prayer, and in the area of the way we handle our money. I want to read something to you. Um, this was sent to a preacher who was, I guess, taking heat for trying to raise money and trying to talk to people about giving. This is from someone, and they wrote it and said, why I will always belong to a church that needs money. On July 23, 1970, my wife gave birth to a beautiful baby boy. For three years, we had tried unsuccessfully to start a family, so our joy was great with what was to be our only biological child. We later adopted a daughter. Lance, the biological son, was born before it became acceptable for the father to be present in the delivery room, a fact, he says, for which I am forever grateful. I waited in the hallway just outside the delivery room, and at precisely 4.13, I heard a sound I will never forget, Lance's first cry. The nurse emerged with a smile and said, you have a baby boy. I responded, yes, I know. I never doubted I would have a son. I could hardly wait to get my wife and Lance out of the hospital and back home so I could get my hands on them. The wonderful glow of fatherhood was soon dimmed, however, when I was asked to visit the business office at the hospital. They wanted me to pay for Lance. 
In fact, it seemed to me that my wife and child might be held hostage until the hospital bill was settled. I wrote the check, paying all the expenses in full, freed my family, and we made our escape. That check turned out to be uh, only one of what would be hundreds, maybe thousands, I would write on Lance's behalf. Children are expensive. You believe that? There was, a for, there was formula to buy, food to buy, doctor's visits, vaccinations assaulted my bank account. Diapers and toys took their toll and clothes were a constant drain. Just about the time we would build a great wardrobe for the kid, he would grow, forcing us to start all over again. As his age and size increased, so did the expenses. There were baseball gloves, Nike shoes, and uniforms. There were glasses for his eyes and braces for his teeth. And then disaster struck. Lance became a teenager. Now it was cars and dates and name brand clothes. Then came college. Lance had always, only, only, always and only wanted to be an architect. It seemed he, wouldn't be in, he would be in school until he was 40 years old. Expenses soared. Tuition, books, drawing tools. But of course, just like parents everywhere, we were happy to be able to help him. And we did all we could to support his growth and his dreams. And then one day, Lance died. On Halloween Day, 1991, we buried 21-year-old Lance in our church's country cemetery. And on that day, we walked away from his grave. And since that day, we have never spent another nickel on Lance. That's how I learned it. Death is cheap. Death can be sustained without expense. It is living that is costly. It is growth that is expensive. Our dreams, visions, and hopes require sacrifice. Death does not. That is why I will always belong to a church that needs money. A living, growing, thriving church will always require the continued, consistent, and conscientious financial support of its members. Isn't that powerful? Next week, we begin a campaign called First Steps. And if you're a visitor right now, this is just incidental knowledge for you. You don't need to really pay real close attention, but this is for the people that call this place home. Next week, we start to collect money over 2007 in the First Steps campaign. Here's what I know. As long as this church pursues the vision of bringing people to Jesus... It will always be required of us to give. It will always be required of us to sacrifice. The day we give up on our vision, we can stop giving money. It's that simple. Next week, we have the opportunity to confirm that we do, in fact, want to see God do in us what we think God wants to do in us. I think that God has given us a vision statement that is succinct, to the point, executable, and at the same time, requires money to do it. That's the takeaway this morning. I can, I can lead halfway and really not pursue this and not push it and never make you mad and never make you uncomfortable and never call you to something more. Or I can step up and step out and I can say, no, we need to lead strong in this area too and we've got to respond we cannot take our foot off the gas the opportunity is great the question is do we have what it takes to step up and walk through doors of opportunity we're going to find out if you're not a believer this morning this message really isn't about 
offerings and it's not about money or it's not about anything else. It's about a God who loves you so much that he sent his son to die on a cross to give you forgiveness, grace, and mercy. Things that you cannot purchase yourself. Things that you can't attain on your own. Things that were done on the cross for you by Jesus. By the same God that directed this whole story that we just read about this morning. And the Bible talks about the abundant life. When the Bible talks about abundant life, I don't think the Bible means that you have all the stuff and all the things. The abundant life is felt when I sit down across the table from a good friend who believes in Jesus and we have a great conversation and at the end we pray together. The abundant life is when we get to support and help one another in hospitals and in and, and down times. The abundant life is when someone encourages you with a card and they've done it because they just, for whatever reason, were thinking about you and thought that they'd pray for you and send you a card to let you know. The abundant life is rich fellowship when we come together in this room to sing, to worship, to lift up our voices, to be heard uh, with one voice, to give our offerings, to take communion, to be taught from the word. The abundant life is the fellowship that happens in this place. The abundant life is what you feel whenever you have a quiet moment alone with God and you say, God, I am so incredibly thankful. That is the abundant life. And so when I offer you a chance to come to Christ and I talk about the abundant life, I'm talking about peace that you will never know any other way than when you settle down with Jesus and he says, you just be still and know that I'm God. I wonder this morning if there's somebody who has never given their heart to God and known that kind of peace. And if you haven't, you have the opportunity this morning to do that when we stand and sing. Let's pray together. Father, you know my heart and you know that sometimes these things are very difficult for me to do and I ask you to first embolden me, give me courage that I sometimes don't have to do these things. And then, Father, I pray that you would help people to be receptive to what you're trying to say. Father, you've done incredible things throughout the history of your people. That doesn't just stop in the Old Testament or the New Testament. I believe that you are working in the hearts and lives of people even today. That you want to affect great change. That you want to see the kingdom grow in unbelievable ways. And that you want Cross Lane to participate in that. And Lord, our natural tendency is to settle for where it feels comfortable our tendency is to just kind of hunker down in a place where we feel safe and we're not really stretched and and we're not uncomfortable at all but Lord I don't know of one time really in scripture where you ever let people stay in that place constantly call us to something more you're trying to stretch us you're trying to grow us you're trying to help us to realize full potential and you only want our best you don't you don't demand any more of us than the very best we can give but the thing is oftentimes we don't give that so this morning father i'm just praying that you would speak to each of us the message that each one of us needs to hear relative to what we've heard this morning cross lane is a great church and you're doing some incredible things with us and in us Lord, as we do what we do, we can only do it with your help. We can only do it with you by our side. We can only do it with you whispering in our ear. So, Father, this morning, we just kind of really want to just nestle with you and, and just feel your comfort and your, your, your watch care, your strength. 
Lord, make us the courageous church that you call us to be. Make us the generous church you call us to be. Make us the church that will reach people for Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray.